Well, if there's one thing that every human being on the face of the earth, really in the history of the world, um, has always sought after, something they've always fought for, bled for, given every ounce of their energy for, it is the term, the word we would use for it is glory. Not even the year 2020 could stop this pursuit of glory. Now, we may not use that vernacular in normal conversation. People may not say that glory is what they pursue, but behind every pursuit, every ambition is this glory. You say, what, what actually is glory? It seems a very, maybe a very churchy word sometimes. Like, what does that word even mean? And the word means greatness. Maybe another synonym for this would be significance or worth or value. Uh, it, actually, the Bible has a word. There's a Hebrew word. Um, here it's called kavod. I got to do that little guttural sound. That's what I get paid for education, right? Kavod. <laughs> it means, the word means, it's a, it's a word means heaviness, weightiness. This is what the word glory means. Literally, the word is heaviness, weightiness uh, for that which is significant, something that cannot be moved, cannot be blown away. It's what really matters. It's what is meaningful. It's what is, it's what is eternally significant. It's a desire uh, to make our lives count for something. Okay? We all have that drive, no matter where you are in your understanding of Jesus. For some, let me give you some examples in cultures and generations. For some, this greatness, this glory is found in, in being, being first, being number one in, a, in an industry or in a career path or whatever it may be. It's like uh, athletics, where one wants to, the glory of winning a championship, right? The glory of finishing first. They want reward for their effort. They want to be seen and appreciated as great. Uh, there was a film some years ago uh, called We Are Marshall, where the college coach speaks to his players, and here's what he says to them. He says, how you play today from this moment on is how you will be remembered. This is your opportunity to rise from the ashes and grab glory, right, glory. For some generations, even today, the greatness is found on the battlefield, right? For many cultures, the greatest glory, the greatest worth is found in being a, a war hero or dying on the battlefield for your country or your people, in the film Pearl Harbor, a soldier, as the Japanese were attacking Pearl Harbor, said the following. He said, quote, remember, pain is temporary, but glory is forever. This glory um, war goes all the way back to even the classic Beowulf written over a thousand years ago where he said, if we die, it's for glory, not gold. And some of the greatness is found in not what you do, and this kind of get close, gets closer to home for many of us. It's not found necessarily uh, what you do, but in what you kind of possess or what you have. What you have, who you know, who likes you, is very much prized above all things. And the more people you know, or the more people that, that know you, or the more things you possess, the greater your value or sense of worth is. In the film, may get close to home here, in the film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Indy's little sidekick, remember his name? Shorty. Remember Shorty? Shorty, okay. Yeah, I thought it was Indiana Jones, Indiana. I thought you guys remember this one. Um, he asked, maybe you remember this part, he asked, why are we going into the temple? Which is a good question because it was kind of scary. Why are we going into the temple? And Indy said to him, fortune and glory, kid, fortune and glory, right? That's why we're going in. And you just see this theme over and over repeating itself. It's everywhere because we as humans can't help but pursue it. It's uh, in our culture, it's in our films, our literature, our music. It echoes everywhere, this pursuit of glory. Why is that? It's because deep down inside of each of your hearts is a desire for something great, something significant, something worth your time. Dare I say someone 
glorious. It's the reason people are obsessed with things like social media. It's why before the, the pandemic and all things that happened around us, things like theaters or concert venues or athletic events were packed with people. It's why people go into massive debt to own a nice car or to go on a luxurious vacation or own a nice home, right? They just pile up the debt to accumulate more things, hoping that will be glory. That's why people flood the dating websites, right, in hopes of finding that special someone who will fill that void. But these pursuits, as we intuitively know, are in vain. We know that because they, they leave us empty. They leave us unsatisfied. They leave us desiring more. And the morning arrives, and you have to start all over again this pursuit, and you just keep striving after it. It's like, the, like being in Groundhog's Day. You just start over with the same pursuits over and over and over again. There's only one thing that truly satisfies, only one thing that doesn't leave you wanting more, only one thing that forever satisfies the hunger, and that, as the Bible describes it, is the glory of God, specifically the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, this means that your innate desire for greatness and glory is no evolutionary concoction here. It has been placed in you by God himself for God himself. You were created for something greater than a mirror, my friends. You were created for something greater than a bank account, greater than a car, greater than Facebook friends, Instagram followers, or snap streaks, okay? You were created for something much greater than those things. Belden Lane his book, Ravished by Beauty, said this, quote, our deepest human longing is to linger with a mystery we aren't able to fathom. We stand in awe before the extravagant wonder of an irreducible other. He's speaking of God. So when you come to understand the gospel, when you go all in and follow Jesus, you do so because what happens at your conversion is you've been captivated by Glory, the glory of God, literally the weightiness of God. You realize that it is the most significant, most significant weighty thing in the universe. You're like, uh, like the two mosquitoes. I'm going to see how many films I can quote today, right? You see, like the two mosquitoes, one of my favorites, though. It's like two mosquitoes on Bugs Life. Do you remember those guys? We're going back a little bit. If you have kids a little bit older, you remember this. Uh, the two bugs, uh, they, they get toward a bug zapper. One flies towards it like he's in a trance, and the other warns him, Harry, no. Don't look at the light. Remember, he goes, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. You know, he, he dies. Who knew that Disney would teach us about irresistible grace, right? It's, it's right there. But it is. That's the glory that we're drawn towards God. Listen to how Paul describes it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? Going back to the beginning of creation, has now shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the what? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, right? So whether you are a Christian or not this morning, know that what you desire deep down, okay, under all the pursuits that are out there, all the things that captivate your heart, that deep down really what you're looking for, what you're made for, designed for, is the glory of God. It's not what you may prescribe uh, for what ails you, but it is the cure, Right? You may have come to church today to, to get some how-to steps. You may have come to help out and help get a, a, a new year started off well here um, um, in hopes of, of warding off some of the past or something like that. But I'm, I'm going to give you today the glory of God in the face of Jesus because that is what you need. Right? John Piper, as uh, John was speaking about earlier in our service at the conference this weekend, I love this quote. He said this, is people are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. 
There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Right? This has been the pursuit throughout the Bible. You can go back to the very beginning and see how the people desire to see the glory of God. You'll find it in this, the second book of the Bible. It's called Exodus. And you find these people of Israel may have heard the story leaving Egypt. And as they're leaving Egypt, they're following the glory of God in a, in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We find later on as the story goes, their leader, Moses, encounters the glory of God on a mountain. And while everyone else ran, he took cover, right? And God said, I'm going to let my glory pass by you, right? And he got to see a little bit as he hid. Then we find times where Moses enters a tent, to, to speak with God, and he comes out having been in the presence of the glory of God, and people, he has to put a, I guess in some ways, almost like a face mask, right? <laughs> he has to put a covering around his face because of the glory that was emanating from his face, being in the presence of God, the people couldn't handle it, right? We find uh, as they wander along the wilderness, God had him set up a tabernacle, it was called in the Bible. It's like a, a tent-like structure where his glory would reside in the middle of their camp, Later on, we, we find this glory of God being, being put into, uh, or being a temple being built by Solomon for the glory of God to reside in. It was a place where they wanted to get close to the glory of God, but they, they couldn't get close, and they could only get close only by blood, yet they were barred from entering the Holy of Holies. They couldn't get in, the curtains, the walls, right? They couldn't get, but so close. This glorious presence of God is mentioned 58 times in the Old Testament. In 10 different books of the Old Testament, as it talked about, and by the time we reach the book of Ezekiel, we find something very, very strange happen, actually. The glory of God departs, leaves, and the people are taken captive into Babylon. So as we leave the Old Testament behind, it's kind of dark and gloomy. It's kind of uh, depressing in some ways. Like the, the glory of God that we all need, we all want, we want to get close to, has, has left. How in the world is this ever going to happen? And all of a sudden, as we celebrated at Christmas, right, what did the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest, right? They, they, were, they were describing the glory of God has now come. The glory of God has now, now taken on human form to us. And so we find in Matthew here, in our, in our Gospel of Matthew, the glory of God in the birth of Jesus Christ has come down. And so in our text today, we're going to see the glory of God again, as was read just a few moments ago. And we're going to see the glory of God displayed in a very wonderful, very unique way. And here's what we'll see if you're, if you're taking notes and want to follow along with me here. We're going to look at God's glory is approachable now. It's made available and then how it can be attained. Okay? Number one, God's glory is approachable. So as we turn the, the page of the New Testament, we find the glory of God appear in the skies after hundreds of years of silence. And again, it appears to shepherds in the field, the announcement of a baby born in Bethlehem. And this boy again was Jesus, God's son, the embodiment of the glory of God because he was God himself. People got to get near the glory of God again. Listen to how John's gospel begins describing this. He says in John 1, 9 through 14, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? His glory. Glory is the only son. It's from the only son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in our text, we're going to not just read about the glory of Christ, we're going to see it in a very unique way. Um, a week has gone by in this passage where we're at in chapter 17. A week has gone by since Jesus kind of dropped the truths to the followers, saying that they need, need to follow him, but not just follow him. Uh, as, as Pastor Justin preached uh, some weeks ago now, we've, I know we've gotten our passages mixed up. We've had to 
been one of those adventures, but if you remember back to his sermon in Matthew 16, it's the part where Jesus said, not just follow me. If you look up at uh, verse 24 to the end of chapter 16, you'll see this, but you got to take up a cross and die, right? Those were some heavy truths that Jesus had, had given them. And so you can imagine the thoughts running through the minds of the disciples. They're really kind of bummed about this idea, like not only is Jesus going to die, but we, we need to follow him that way. And they don't quite know how to feel. And so Jesus grabs three of the disciples. He grabs Peter, James, and John. He goes up to a mountainside to pray, according to the Gospels. He's just taking them to go pray. As you can imagine this scene, they're slowly making their way up the mountainside and find a place to stop and, and to rest when all of a sudden, the passage gives us that Jesus basically goes all transformers on them, okay? Completely just transforms in this way. You said, was it like Bumblebee? No, I don't know if it was like Bumblebee, but we, we, we really don't know what happened, actually. The word that's used that we don't really use in any other setting is the word transfigure. We use it called the transfiguration, okay? The word transfigure is actually a really hard word to translate in English from the original language, which was Greek. Matthew tells us, gives us some description. He says that it was as bright as the sun Jesus was. Uh, basically, the language is like he looked like a bolt of lightning is the idea. Um, we find Luke's account says Jesus literally became other. That's all he says. <laughs> Jesus became other, <laughs> and that's it. It's something magnificent happening here, something marvelous, and it's leaving the eyewitnesses here speechless. Now, I want you to imagine what the three disciples here felt. Would you imagine being them? They weren't, they weren't high-fiving each other, right? They weren't holding up their hands in worship even. They, they thought they were going to die. Okay, they just fell flat on their face in the dirt, right? While the temple in their minds, while the temple may have possessed the glory of God, it at least was marked off by a curtain, okay? At least I had some distance. I had something barrier between me and the glory of God. I got nothing right now, right? And this glory is not just reflecting off Jesus like the, the, you know, the sun to the moon. It's emanating from Jesus like he is the very sun, right? He is God. That's why. So Jesus is not pointing to the glory of God. He's saying in this whole, whole scene, he is the glory of God. That's why in John 12, 45, Jesus says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me, right? I and the Father are one. He'll say that in the Gospel of John. And here's the thing. No curtain, no veil is available. They are seeing the unfiltered, unadulterated glory of God, and they think they're, they're, they're toast. They are going to die. And so, and, and then something else happens. Look at the text down in verse 3. We have a few guests appear. <laughs> verse 3, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Just all of a sudden, here these guys show up. Jesus is chatting with some friends who appear to come out of nowhere. And the text tells us it's Mo Moses and Elijah. Keep in mind, they didn't emerge from the ground. They didn't emerge from a cave on the mountainside where they've been hiding out for some years, okay? These guys, in case you don't know the story, these guys are like dead, dead, like been dead for a long time. Matter of fact, about, they've been worm food for about 1,400 years and 900 years respectively, okay? So they've been dead a long time, and yet, bam, here they are talking with Jesus. Now, disciples recognize them, the text says, which, just as a side note, I, how, what? How do they know that? Um, I was thinking, like, I know in our culture, we go, like, well, of course they knew. It's like, well, there was no Facebook, no Instagram. There was no profile searches on their non-existent iPhones. They didn't even have the, I even thought, they didn't even have the old Western photos with the, you know, the gunpowder, flash powder stuff. They didn't even have that. They had no photos to go off of. So I don't know if they had a name tag. Hi, I'm Elijah. Hi, I'm Moses. This is where my mind goes as I think through this. How did they know? Anyway, just worth nothing, probably, what I just said. But anyway, 
So we get a good indication, though, don't we, here? We get a good indication that the Bible affirms what it says, that there is life after death. These guys are still alive. But the question I ask is, why these two guys? Why Elijah and Moses? Why not David or Solomon or Adam and Eve, even? Like, the first two, that would have been kind of neat. I mean, like, why these two? And I have to believe that the answer is that Moses and Elijah represented the entirety of the Old Testament. Moses was known as the law giver. Elijah was known as the first of the prophets. Listen to what Jesus would say at the end of Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament with the law and the prophets. And here you have the lawgiver and the first of the prophets. Right there, They appear because they, they point you to the entirety of the Old Testament. They're pointing to Jesus as the glory of God. And, and here's the thing. Peter knows this. He's a pretty sharp guy, right? But he felt exposed, which we all would feel, before the glory of God without any kind of covering, border or wall or anything. And so he proposed a solution, which kind of makes sense. Look at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Check. Oh, yeah, it's good. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I love that Luke's account, uh, Luke's account actually says, Peter's saying this not knowing what he said. <laughs> Peter just, this is Peter, right? He just blurted out with the first thing that came to his mind, no filter, just out it comes. And interestingly enough, you know what the word shelters means? It's the same word used in the Old Testament for the word tabernacle. That's what he's asking for, right? Uh, it's, it's what they built in the Old Testament to shelter God's presence and shield his holiness from the people so that they could approach him. So that's what he's saying. I should probably build like a tabernacle, some kind of tent, something to, to, to keep distance between us because I shouldn't be here. You see, this is what most religions build, right? Most religions recognize a, a wide gap between man and God, and so they erect things like temples or sanctuaries or holy places, and they have high priests, right, in order to intervene for the common people, for God. Peter understood he needed protection from the glory of God. So he requests a tabernacle. You can't just approach God's glory on your own. He understood that. Uh, being a student of the Old Testament, he knew that was the case. So verse 5, here it says, While he was still speaking, a, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Luke tells us, so remember there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four gospel accounts. Many of them have similar stories, different kind of angles, and tells you about things. So just to fill the story in, Luke tells us that the disciples start to be afraid because this cloud is miraculously starting to form in the sky. And the language is that the cloud doesn't, interesting enough, doesn't form a shadow like every cloud we know does, right? If a cloud forms over top, it provides shade or shadow, right? This one doesn't do that. It actually provides more light. So this is definitely an unusual cloud. Um, and what was even more unusual is that it spoke, okay? A voice came from the cloud. And even more unusual than that, the voice emerged. It was the Father affirming the Son. And the cloud was definitely what Moses would have understood here, right? The people of Israel followed the cloud by day. This is what's going on. I'm sure Moses is like, I've seen this one before. Let me tell you a story. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit of something I saw before. Um, but that's what's going on. Verse 6. The disciples heard this, and they, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And they looked up. They saw no one except Jesus. I love that the disciples are losing it, right? They are scared to death. They're sure they're going to die. I mean, you can go to the Old Testament. Anytime anyone thought they, 
whether they encountered or thought they encountered the glory of God, even if it was an angel, you'll see over and over again, okay, we're going to die. <laughs> we're done for. And so they understand this. And I love that Jesus just walks over. And Matthew here, the, the verse here, the word says he touches them. And actually the word for touching can be translated hug. <laughs> you imagine? You guys, just, just bring it in here. Just bring it in. It's okay. It's all right. I love it. I mean, I just love the picture of him just telling them it's going to be okay. They're probably thinking, again, they're going to die, but he, he touches them. Now, why are the disciples not consumed with this glory like Moses said would happen if anyone got close to God? Remember in the mountain, anything got close, even an animal, it would be struck dead, right? So, so why? Why did Moses need to cover his face after seeing God, and yet they don't? This tells us, guys, which is all the Gospels have been telling us, that Jesus is able to give what others couldn't give. He can cross the gap into the very heart of reality, into the very heart of God. Jesus, in essence, is the tabernacle to end all tabernacles, right? We, we went through Hebrews, you understand this. He, he fulfilled all of that. The reason only Jesus remains here is because Moses and Elijah, they couldn't bridge that gap. Only Jesus could. Jesus is God in human form, making the glory of God approachable for every single one of us. You say, but, but Jesus only reveals this to three guys. What about the other disciples? What about the crowds? Like, is this only like an inside thing? Because he even says here, like, don't tell anybody. So like, is he kind of keep this to himself? Well, I love if you go over to the Gospel of John, and you go to chapter 8 of John, we find that Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles right after this event at the temple where thousands of people were gathered. You say, what was that? What was going on with the Feast of Tabernacles? That's a strange uh, holiday. What is that? They were, they, it, was there, it was there where they celebrated the glory of God was with the people of God, with the, with the people of Israel in the wilderness. It's a celebration of that kind of scene of going out of Egypt and, and, being, and following the cloud by day and fire by night. And so the temple area um, would actually have, at this time in history, had four great kind of uh, torches. Some say the torches, historians say they were high as the highest walls of the temple. So we were very big. You see how big was that? About 100 feet tall. Okay, that's a, that's a big candle, okay? Um, and, and on top of these golden torches were great bowls holding about 20 gallons of oil each. That's a lot of oil. That's going to burn a long time. And there was a ladder that the priest, I don't know, apparently had a gym membership, right, climbed and lit the wicks. The flames illumined the whole area. I mean, you can imagine this. It would have been fantastic to see. So it would be like the Olympics, seeing the torch lit, okay? Kind of the same idea, but four of them, okay? Big fireballs going on. And after lighting it, the, the torches, the people would celebrate. They would sing. They would remember the glory of God in the, with the people of God coming out of Egypt. That moment, at the very moment they're doing that, Jesus walks to, as it were, front stage, and says this. Listen, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That, that was pretty powerful. Can you imagine everyone going like, whoa, whoa, hold on, what is he, is he, yeah, he is saying that, isn't he? <laughs> he's saying he was that glory. He was that light. He, he is, that's what he's saying. He was the light of the world. He wasn't talking about the sun. He was talking about that pillar of cloud and fire that led the Jewish people through the wilderness after Egypt. My friends, Jesus is the light of the world. He doesn't reflect God's glory. He is God's glory. He has made God's glory approachable by taking on human form. But any God-fearing Israelite who heard these truths, even those who believed Jesus' words, would immediately stop you and say, that's great that God's glory is approachable, but there's a reason we have a curtain here, Okay. There's a reason there's a barrier. 
we understand there's a reason there was a veil over Moses' face. They understood, as we should, at least we intuitively know, whether you believe this or not, we are what the Bible calls sinners. We are barred from the presence of God. To get close to the holiness of God is to be consumed by that. And so, we, so they're asking, no doubt, what's next? So we pick up on the conversation with the disciples heading down the mountain now to discover that God's glory is not only approachable, but it's made available to us. Watch this, uh, verse 9. God's glory is made available. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, again, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, be sure Elijah comes, will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah's already come. They did not recognize him, but have, come, have uh, done to him as they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at, the hands, at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So the, the Old Testament book Malachi, the last, last book of the Old Testament, sometimes affectionately called um, the Malachi, the Italian prophet that I like to call him, but he wasn't Italian, and that's not how you say his name, but it's just fun. Anyway, uh, Malachi prophesied in there. He said, Elijah would return before the great day of the Lord when God will appear and make everything right. Great day, right? That's, that's going to be a wonderful day, but that's not exactly how this happened. So the disciples are saying, hey, we... We just saw Elijah up on there on top of that mountain, right? The day of the Lord must be here, right? It's happening, right? We're going to make all things right. We're going to kick out these Romans, like set up the kingdom. This is going to be wonderful. Jesus corrects him and says that the Elijah that the prophets were pointing to was actually John the Baptist, and he has suffered, and he has died. Elijah has come and gone. And notice that Jesus capitalizes on this conversation to get to the real point which is in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. In the same way, man, he was going, Jesus was going to die. You say, but wait a minute, the glory of God is going to die? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. The glory of God is going to get snuffed out by men? How is that even possible? And the answer is that the only way we can access the glory of God, the only way we can get near the consuming fire that is God's holiness and not get cons consumed like that bug to a bug zapper is not by building a tent it's not by building a tabernacle or a temple, but by having the pillar of fire, Jesus, die for us. Moses and Elijah knew that. Matter of fact, listen, Luke's account of this, what happened on top of the mountain, listen to this. Luke 9, 30 to 31, behold, two men were talking to him, Moses and Elijah, so similar to our story, who appeared in glory, and here it is, spoke of his, speaking of Jesus, departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Like, okay, there's some extra information. It's a little bit of insight that we didn't hear in Matthew's account. So Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were kind of chit-chatting for a while, lots of conversation. And it wasn't small talk here. They spoke of Jesus' departure. You know what the word in the original language here in the Greek, the word for departure is? It's the Old Testament word, exodus. <laughs> it's the word exodus. Jesus was going to depart, have an exodus via a cross, a tomb, and break out. He would, and then he would lead his people out of the bondage, not of the Egyptians, but out of the bondage of sin and lead him to the promised land, not of, of, of the physical land, but of the promised land of eternal life and access to the glory of God forever. That's exactly what they were talking about. And when Jesus would go to that cross, he would take on our sin. And the result would be that he would be, as we looked at Christmas Eve, he would be abandoned for that. Can you hear the, the Father's voice here in Matthew 17? This is my beloved son whom I love whom I'm well pleased, right? I mean, that language. It's the same language you heard, remember, back in Matthew 3 when Jesus was baptized, remember? 
The Father speaking from the clouds, same language as my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased, whom I love. And throughout Matthew, we find Jesus, we saw last time we looked at Matthew together, we find, we find that Jesus goes and spends time in prayer. And he, he goes and spends time with the Father. He goes up on the mountainside. Remember when the storm hit the sea and Jesus was up on the mountain? He was praying. But on the cross, something happened that was startling. The voice of the Father actually went silent. Listen to Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, this is Jesus on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a startling scene. What a, what a startling thing to hear. I mean, Jesus frantically, as it were, lifted his eyes up to the sky, awaiting an answer that he'd always had from the Father, who had gladly spoken to him. Where are you? He asks, right? And for the first time, and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just horrible, endless silence in his greatest hour of need. Jesus didn't get an answer. The father turned away from his son. Jesus was left all alone, abandoned, left for dead. That's, that's, that's powerful, right? I mean, that, that's hard. We, we understand in our human relationships the, the, the pain of losing someone. Right? And we understand the greater that pain is, the closer they are. Right? To lose an acquaintance is, is hard. To lose a friend, that hurts even worse. To lose a loved one, say a spouse after decades of being married, is almost something you can't even recover from. It's so painful and hurts so bad. Right? We, the closer that relationship is, the harder the break is. Think about that relationship with the father and son beginning less. <laughs> it, 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 it always was much longer than any human relationship we could ever have. And yet at this moment, it broke. At this moment, there was silence. You say, why was that? Why did the father turn his back on his son and not respond? Because 2 Corinthians 5 is going to tell us that Jesus became sin for us. Jesus was treated like we should be treated for all eternity, which is what hell is. Hell is separation from God forever. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced, separation, abandonment in that sense. Tears rolled down his face imagine the face of the one who would wipe away revelation says every tear from every eye who believed in him this was the only way that god could destroy sin without destroying us in the process it's the only way that god's glory which is our greatest joy our greatest good could be made available to us forever my friends the gospel the good news the story of christmas we just celebrated is that god's glory is now available to us but it was costly Jesus made a way to the glory of God, and it was on his back. So the question becomes, how do we then attain this glory of God? How, how do we get closer? How do we get more satisfied with that which we need most? For you who don't know Jesus, the answer is pretty simple. is to admit you're a sinner. It's to believe in Jesus and commit to him. That's what it is. For those who know Jesus, the pursuit is continued humility and faith in him, continued pursuit of him. We need to go back to the well of the glory of God over and over again to keep us from straying over and over again. Look at the uh, last point here. God's glory is attained. Look at verse 14. They came to the crowd. It says, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. And he begins to give this description here, and he talks about disciples couldn't heal him. So right at the bottom of the mountain, we find really a chaotic scene, quite different than what we just saw. We have the disciples here in the scene. They're flabbergasted, hands up in the air. We have the crowds who have gathered in curiosity, right, whispering to each other. We have, according to Mark, the religious leaders are there, heckling, pointing fingers, right, at Jesus and the disciples. And finally, we have a father and a son show up who are downcast, a lot of pain, a lot of heartache. 
And what we see happening is an absence, really, of the glory of God, right? The, in the absence of the glory of God, we see just brokenness everywhere. The disciples had tried to cast a demon from a boy, but they couldn't. And the demon casting was one of the greatest displays of God's glory and greatness. We see this throughout the gospel accounts. It displayed the supremacy of Jesus over, over the demonic world. And though the, though the father witnessed their lack of success of the disciples, right, they, they couldn't help him. You know what I love about him? He didn't leave. He stayed. He didn't give up. He waited for Jesus. He could not let the disciples' failure discourage him. He wanted to see Jesus. You say, what was, there, what was the problem here? Well, the Gospels together tell us, the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, tell us that when the, the demon sees the boy, we talked about in many of the stories there, the, the child would scream. The spirit would throw him to the ground, foam at the mouth. All kinds of things like this would be happening. He's covered in scars, no doubt. Even worse, it says in the other accounts that he'd become deaf and mute as a result of this. And says the, 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 the dad says literally the language here is the demon was crushing him as a language. You can imagine the heart of this father, right? Trying everything to help his son. Disciples who are followers of Jesus can't help him. Why wouldn't the demon budge? Why did disciples fail? And Mark adds something very interesting. Mark adds to the story, you may know this, adds the reason why. And he says, because they didn't pray. <laughs> like, they didn't pray. What do you mean? What he's talking about there is they, they didn't trust God to do what only he could do. And they didn't see the glory of God put on display because of that. The disciples, remember in the stories, had cast out many demons before. This was in their first rodeo here. And now they have become confident in their own abilities to do the things that God had called them to do. They tried, as it were, prayerless exorcism, but it didn't work, okay? They couldn't do it on their own. They were confident in their own abilities. They didn't understand the reason why Jesus even had to die. They didn't see their own weakness, and they were proud. They underestimated the, the power of evil in the world and in themselves, and deep down looked for their own glory instead of God's, and they came up short. They had become presumptuous, and how easy that is to do in life, in ministry, right? Start to coast. You don't trust God as much as you used to because, you know, I've been around a block a few times. Uh, I, I know what's going on. And the reason we don't see the glory of God on display as much as we could is because we do become arrogant and prideful, partly in thinking that we don't need to taste the glory of God anymore, we're good, partly in thinking we got it covered, partly in thinking that, you know what, there are more important things in life to focus on than to be engaged in all the brokenness and pain and hurt and lostness around us, right? Those are all the reasons why we don't see the glory of God put on display. We're basically consumed with ourselves. We need humility. We need faith to get out of our comfort zones, engage the brokenness around us. And remember that only God saves, right? We water, God gives the increase. Only God can bring fruit in our lives. First Corinthians 4 says that God just wants faithfulness from us, leave the results to him. We're to pray for wisdom and trust God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us that. Let him guide us. Guys, remember the glory, the glory of God is the cure to what ails you. And there's no glory in the glory of man. God will not share his stage with you, and he would not let, he would not, you will not see the glory of God at work until you engage, right, the brokenness around you. There's, there's one figure in this whole scene of this story who acknowledges his own weakness, right? There's one person admitting that he doesn't have it all together and doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to handle what's around him, right? He doesn't have what it takes to handle the evil and the suffering that he faces, and he longs for the glory of God to be put on display. You know who that person was in the story? The father of this boy, he was completely healed and given back to the Father anyway, despite the lack of faith from the disciples. With just a grain of faith, by the way, you say, oh, this guy must have been a tremendous you know, 
faith you know, guy. He must have been really, you know, really knew his Bible or whatever. I love how Mark puts this. Here's what Mark's account says about this. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. I love the statement. Help my unbelief, please. <laughs> he just had a, a little grain of faith, just barely hanging on, right? And Jesus doesn't tell him, doesn't tell the guy, you know what, you go away and get stronger faith and come back to me and I'll, I'll, I'll do something here for your son. Doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say go back and come back tomorrow. I mean, that's because, and it's so important you understand, weak faith in a strong object is superior to strong faith in a weak object, right? Weak faith in a strong object is so much superior than strong faith in a weak object. It's all about the object. It's all about what your faith is in. This guy, in this story, this father is full of doubts, and rightfully so. We can understand why. The disciples had tried and failed so many times, but just a little faith demonstrated in utter humility pulled the trigger on the compassion of God immediately. Humility and faith, that's what it took. You say, how do, we, how do we practically demonstrate humility and faith in our life to sense and experience the glory of God? How do we do that practically? What are some practical things? Let me give you two. Worship and engagement and worship in the word. I'll end with this, just kind of practical. Remember that though the father's faith was weak, it was still faith. It took, a, it took great risk on his part having the disciples try to heal his boy. He even showed great endurance, didn't he? And faith in waiting until Jesus could help him. If you want to see the glory of God on display in your life, then you're going to have to take some risks, okay? You're going to have to, you're going to, have to endure. You're going to have to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. You're going to have to step out and engage the brokenness and pain and lostness that is around you and not hide from it. You can't isolate yourself and hide and play church and expect to see the glory of God put on display through your life. There's nothing greater than seeing God use your little, big, your little risk, your little stepping out of your comfort zone to engage the lost, engage the broken, the hurting, and just feel the glory of God like just working through you, to see the grace of God coming through. The glory of God was seen in this situation because brokenness and darkness was engaged, mercy and compassion were shown. Listen to how Isaiah 58, this is from Isaiah 58, 6 through 8. Let me just read this. It's not going to be on the screen. I added it this morning. <laughs> it's what he said. Is not this the fast I choose? All right, the people of Israel. Oh, look at there. It is up there. You guys are good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this passage, listen to this. Is not this the fast that I choose? You say fasting. Isn't that just fasting from food and seeing, seeing God that way? No. Is it not the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall, look at this, you do these things, shall your light break forth like the dawn, your healing shall spring up speedily, your righteousness shall go before you, and here it is, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. It's like, it's, 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 all this is is people just engaging the brokenness and pain around them. And, and, and they, the light shines, right? The glory of God appears and works through that. There's another way. That's one way, practically. Another way, Peter's going to tell us about it, too. Remember, Peter was the one on top of the mountain seeing Jesus. Uh, it is worshiping God through the revealed word of God. You may think that experiencing the glory of God only comes through things that you necessarily do outwardly or may only come through spectacular kind of things like on top of this mountain here with Jesus revealing his glory. But Peter experience that? And listen, maybe, maybe you don't know this. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this towards the end of his life. He says this, 
Here's where the glory of God is found. Listen. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, it's on top of the mountain, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, listen. And we have the prophetic word. You say, what a prophetic word? What is that? It's your Bible. <laughs> we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. Very similar language, by the way, Isaiah 58. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see what Peter's saying? He's saying, taste the glory of God on the pages of Scripture. He's saying, open your Bible and see the living God breathing off the pages of Scripture. And listen, it's not looking at Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Rather, it's like looking at them and seeing Jesus through them, right? Remember, they were the whole point. They displayed the glory of God in the Old Testament, your Bible reading, I told you this before, is like a, it's like an adventure, right? It's like playing Where's Waldo instead. It's like, where's Jesus? Where's he at? Right? I'm reading the pages, not just to read the pages. I need God. I need to see your glory. I need to see Jesus. This is how Jesus would put this, Matthew 22, 29. He answered the Pharisees, the religious leaders who knew their Bible inside and out. He told them they were wrong, which has been a very interesting to see their face when he said that. He says, you knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And they're just like, what? <laughs> of course we know the scriptures. We know all about it. No, you don't, because you didn't see me. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. What does that mean? It means by doing what it says and just observing the stories. But it's they, the stories, they bear witness about me. Jesus said, it's all pointing to me. And if you don't see that, you missed the, you missed the forest for the tree, right? You're looking at the Bible, but you're missing the point. As we journey through this life, listen, my friends, we will ebb and flow between times of humility and faith, where we engage the brokenness around us, draw close to Jesus through the word, and then we'll have other times of pride and doubt where we isolate ourselves, lean on our own understanding, right? We will taste and see the glory of God in ways like never before, and then it seems like the next day we'll be consumed with our own glory. Anybody else relate to this? <laughs> Back and forth we go. There's coming a day where that experience that they had on top of that mountaintop will be ours, and there'll be no more fight, no more wrestling, no more failure, right? No more, no more of that going on, but the glory of God will be revealed forever in the presence of God in eternity. I love how C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the sense that in the universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our, what he calls our inconsolable secret. It's that desire for glory deep in our soul. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. And then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside will be met. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the, the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, we will get in. So we go to communion, okay? For you who don't know Jesus, this is not for you. We welcome your questions. We welcome your opportunity right now to have some quiet time to talk to God. You can do that, by the way. Prayer is just talking to God. You can do that in quiet. You can do it out loud. I don't care. You can engage God. But if you know Jesus this morning, 
want you to think about two questions, okay? What is, what is your plan, first of all, for 2021, taking risks and engaging the brokenness and pain and lostness around you? What's your plan? Don't have one? Ask God to help give you one. Secondly, how are you going to get to know, how are you going to get to know God, see the glory of God through the pages of Scripture? A lot of times we have, we, we start 2021 off, right? Pastor Steve mentioned, I've got my yearly Bible reading plan going on, right? Those are great. We need to have that, and we need to also have a plan of engagement. Those are the ways that, the, that we see in this passage, the glory of God is going to be seen and experienced by us. is by through the pages of Scripture and through the engagement of the lost, hurting, and broken around you, right? What's your plan for those? If you don't have one, ask God for those. This is an opportunity to do that. So as we, there's little cups with juice and bread inside. We, we do this because we want to remember that the whole point, why we're here, why we're sitting here, why we're watching online, wherever we are, the reason we do this is because of Jesus. We're not doing this to earn points with God. We're not doing this to absolve any sin from us or make things right. We are simply coming to remember what Jesus has already done for us and to resolve to continue to, to, to push in and to, and to go after Jesus in this way. So as you take the juice and the bread, we do this in remembrance of him. Um, and we'll do that here in a moment as we take some quiet time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word um, and the opportunity to, to see the story. Uh, these stories are so wonderful to think about. As we think about your glory on top of that mountain, Lord, right now we want to do everything we can to experience that for ourselves, but also to share that with others. We want to take in your glory on the pages of Scripture, and we want to experience your glory be put on display as we make those, take those risks, push outside of our comfort zone, engage the brokenness, the darkness, the hurting, the pain, the lostness around us. God, would you give us both of those passions this year as a church? Uh, God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.